0: I've been registered for four different SAT tests over the last year. Every single one of them was canceled, some of them just a week before. My first was in April, then August, then October, and then November. Over the course of the first pandemic months, more and more schools were coming out in favor of test optional admissions until it became the standard. But as my summer wound down to a close, I was still spending and being refunded the same 60 bucks. And I know a lot of other people were doing the same thing. Why? For me, the answer lay not in the schools that I was applying to, but in how I would pay for them. An SAT score, specifically a score from an SAT test that I hoped to do well on, was essential to my biggest scholarship application. So I kept going to the College Board website and getting onto the SAT application page, and signing up. And every month or so I'd check my bank account app, and see the refund, and know that it had been cancelled. Again. After I had to turn in that scholarship application with a cover letter explaining my lack of test score, I started to wonder, what's the point? It's not like this system suddenly started sucking this year. Access to the SAT, ACT, and other optional standardized tests has always varied depending on students' circumstances. It's just that this year, everyone had circumstances. The global pandemic, a recession larger than any since the Great Depression, an eviction crisis, a long-due national reckoning with racism, all of these things affect students and almost none of them go away after widespread vaccine distribution. Are those students affected going to be left behind? Are we going to create or adjust systems, transportation, technology, study tools, to accommodate them? And on what scale? Or like, is standardized testing even that good of a metric for academic success? This month on Students Speak Out.
1: There is no such thing as a standardized test that can assess every person perfectly. Hey
0: there, listeners, and welcome to the second episode of Students Speak Out with Simone St. Pierre Nelson. I'm your host, Simone. And if you've never listened before, welcome. Each month, I interview students and student organizers across the country to get their perspective on different topics at the intersection of equity and education. Last time, I explored civic engagement with Walkis Mohammed, a wonderful organizer from Portland, Maine, on her work towards promoting an anti-racist mindset in her district. We also heard from my student voice team members, Gabriella and Sydney, about ways to get involved in your own district. This month, I'm talking about standardized testing. Yeah, I know. I wondered how other students have interacted with standardized testing during the pandemic. Here's Amelia Brandemart.
2: I've been tested all my life, I would say. Amelia lives in Long Island, New York, and then like me... And I'm also done with the SAT. I took it twice. I took it um, in September and November, and I know usually they don't do it that close together.
0: Um, jealous. Even though she took standardized tests for college, Amelia is staunchly against the institution.
2: My issue on the whole is that really we're we're taught to test. Um, It's not what we should be learning, it's not what uh, we want to be learning, it's what the state, what what the SAT, what College Board is testing us. It's never... and that takes away from like what learning should be because it's more about
0: uh,
2: self-growth I guess and Um, at least that's what I think learning should be.
0: And she says that a lot of her peers agree with her. But even so, I don't really, I don't think I know anyone who didn't take it at all. Amelia describes a picture that I'm super familiar with. Her friends are worried about scholarships and doubt that the optional part of Test Optional is in earnest. The only difference between their situation and mine? Location. As I started doing some in-depth research for this episode, I learned a lot about standardized testing's history and underpinnings in the United States. In Amelia and I's conversation, she referenced that the concept of a standardized test was born out of investigations and idealizations around inherent intelligence. I looked into this and she was right. Standardized academic testing was born out of the excitement created by IQ testing let's go on a brief tour of the history of standardized tests in the U.S. to understand how we got to the place that we're at today. So I used a variety of sources for this section, but the most prominent by far was a super in-depth timeline created by the National Education Association. I'll link that timeline in the episode description. Okay, here we go. Standardized testing for admissions is first proposed in 1890 by Charles William Elliott, and the idea catches on. From 1900 to 1932, testing programs boom. According to the National Education Association, 1,300 achievement tests are on the market, compared to about 400 tests of mental capacities. The NEA also says that statewide testing programs become more common during this time. By 1918, there are well over 100 standardized tests, developed by different researchers to measure achievement in the principal, elementary, and secondary school subjects. And 1926 is the first year where standardized academic testing is adopted nationally. The first SAT tests are administered. Yes, that SAT. Apparently, the original SAT test was only 90 minutes long. Again, jealous. Here there's, a period of three or four de- Here, there's a period of three or four decades where the SAT and other standardized tests get bigger and better, and more commonly utilized. The ACT was developed in competition to the SAT in 1959, and in 1965, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act is passed, which the NEA credits with opening the way for new and increased uses of norm-referenced tests to evaluate programs. Coming into the 21st century, the SAT and the ACT become just part of a gauntlet of tests that students might face before they get to college. AP tests, the PSAT, SAT subject tests, the list goes on, and that's only from the college board. The two most important federal pieces of policy in the background of this new era of testing are No Child Left Behind, which if you're my age you've almost certainly heard of, and ESSA, which is a little newer and a little less familiar. To summarize, the No Child Left Behind Education Reform of 2001 is an expansion of state-mandated standardized testing as a means of assessing school performance, and in practice, that looked like most students being tested for each year of grade school to evaluate the efficacy of their teachers, their curriculum, etc. And ESSA, which is also known as the Every Student Succeeds Act, is passed in 2015. ESSA rolls back some of No Child Left Behind's emphasis on testing as the most important metric of success in a school environment, but statewide assessments are still required for grades 3 through 8, and once in high school. Woof. So that's a long history, and now we're here. In 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic forced a radical change in education, from in-person to out of the building, online instruction. This shift laid bare inequities that have always been present in the U.S.'s educational system and the impact of that collective realization will hopefully lead to lasting change. My second interviewee for this episode, Julie Russ, hopes that one of those changes is the abolition of standardized testing.
1: My name is Juliana Russ and um I I was a Student Voice Journalism Fellow um last year in 2019.
0: Julie published a great article about her experiences with K-Prep. That's Kentucky's statewide standardized testing program with Student Voice. And like Amelia and unlike me,
1: um I took the ACT for the first time my sophomore year um and that was like I've taken it two other times, but sophomore year was still my highest score. So, I hadn't I the last the last one I took was actually March um 10th of this year, just a couple days before we went into lockdown. It was my state mandated one. So that was the last one, really. <laughs> and I haven't I haven't thought about doing any others cuz it just didn't seem worth it to me.
0: Wait. Okay. Back up. State mandated? Did you say that the state mandated that you take the ACT? What does that look like?
1: Um, basically the state pays for every junior in Kentucky, um, to take the ACT at least once.
0: When I heard this, I was like, whoa, that's awesome.
1: And Julie clocked my reaction.
0: She was quick to explain that while it might seem like a positive thing on the surface, and it was at some level truly helpful for lower income students, it was an issue of trying to address
1: equality versus creating equity.
0: right, could you expand on that?
1: Yeah, totally. Um, so I think that providing, providing the funds for every student to take the test at least once is a way on on the surface. It looks like that's leveling the playing field, but in actuality, um, that doesn't fix the problem. It's a band Um, equity is making, is making sure that everybody has the resources, um, that are, proportional to their needs. Whereas equality is giving everyone the same thing. So students who are lower income, instead of um, providing one test for every student, I think that if they really wanted to make things equitable, they would provide free uh, test prep for lower income students and that type of thing. Um, Because even though everybody gets one test, obviously there are people like myself who are in a privileged enough position to be able to take those tests multiple times. Um, or pay for the, for the advanced tutor for the torch prep program, you know, that type of thing um, that lower income students often don't don't. And I have free time, you know, I'm working a job, but I know a lot of people that don't work jobs and have time to dedicate hours and hours every night um, to studying for the ACT. When there are students who are literally working three jobs to keep their family afloat and they they don't have that sort of time. And then people wonder why they have worse scores. And it's not about intelligence. And so I think investing, like, first of all, I think divesting from standardized tests in general is what we should be doing. And that's the ultimate goal. But if we're talking about um, creating opportunities for lower income students, paying for one test for every student is not the answer.
0: Another thing that Julie said was that there would never be a standardized test that was perfect or would work for everyone, because the human experience
1: isn't standardized. Getting into high school, it's like I I heard people talk about um, the inequities, and not even the inequities in the way that the pandemic has exposed, but inequities in like, oh, like I started my period this morning and my, like, that ACT did not go how I wanted it to because I was in so much, like, pain, you know? Or... Um, I had to work until 11 last night and I, and I didn't get any sleep, you know, and you think, God, if only, if only there are a way to control for factors like that, but then you realize everyone's lived experiences are so different. You're never going to be able to control for all of the, all of the factors that are, that are involved in how well you do on a test, especially a test that doesn't that doesn't really test you on content. It doesn't test you on how much you know. It tests you on how good you are at taking a test, which is um, for a specific type of mind. It's it's coordinated for a specific type of brain. If you have a different brain, it won't work for you. And your your value in the eyes of those who determine the opportunities ahead of you, whether that be monetarily, whether that be academically, All of that changes just because your brain doesn't fit the mold that these standardized tests fit, you know? It's very upsetting to realize, and the pandemic has only heightened um, awareness of that. So, so let me
0: say, Julie knocked my socks off in this interview. Naturally, I had to ask her the impossible question. How do we evaluate students equitably without standardized testing?
1: This is a really hard question um and something that are like the people that are even like experts on this don't really know and so it's kind of hard for me to say but um I think that taking away that abolition of standardized testing is for sure um a really important first step but in order to make sure that that we're able to adequately measure students in the future and we should we should be investing more in in equitable opportunities at every level. You know there shouldn't be there shouldn't be gifted and talented, um, quite honestly. I don't think. Um, I don't think that there should be, a free and re- reduced lunch difference. I think that there should be everyone has free and reduced lunch. You know, um, I think that school supplies should be provided by school districts you know i think i think that bussing should be a given um there are just so many things because some students have the have the opportunity to to have more to do more to be more than others do in the system that we're in right now and reforming the entire system isn't going to be easy but i think standardized testing erasing it is a really good place to start um i think focusing more on hard work is going to be going to be important i think that the gpa is is a really important factor that should be considered Um, because no matter how students and obviously that's inequitable too because some students might have more or less time to work on homework you know because they're working jobs whatever but i think that getting work done and working hard in the classroom says a lot more than one sitting for one test you know So, it's not an easy answer, um, and there are a lot of paths to look at and kind of dissect, but in the grand scheme of things, I think that, that standardized testing abolition is the first step in a series of steps, if that makes sense.
0: Both Amelia and Julie focus not only on an overhaul of curriculum, but also on the possibility of a grade-based college admissions process. When talking about how students should be evaluated by admissions offices, the phrase hard work came up in both of my interviews, something that intrigued me and gave me pause. Who defines hard work? Because if dedication to working hard decides who gets in to what college, that's a pretty big question. And, like intelligence, I don't think that there's any one answer that everyone will agree on. Is hard work when you're physically exhausted? Okay, so what about people with difficulty focusing, who need to take breaks to be able to work? Because they stop before they're physically tired, does that make them not hard workers? Or, okay, is it hard work when you show up every day? Some might say that's too low of a bar. Others with chronic illness or disabilities might say that it's insurmountable. Google's Dictionary defines hard work as a great deal of effort or endurance. This is not helpful to me. Who gets to define a great deal? What effort looks like? What endurance looks like? As someone with a physical disability, a 10-minute mile in middle school sure felt like hard work to me. But to others who were running a 4 or a 6, I'm sure that it might have looked like... I didn't have a great deal of endurance." I'm not saying that admission primarily based on grades, essays, and personal evaluations isn't better than admission that's primarily based on standardized testing. But I am saying that, like Julie alluded to earlier, an educational system focused around productivity that uses one definition of hard work is always going to be an educational system that leaves many behind. And that's it. To see some of the resources I used for the history of standardized testing in America, check out the description. I'll also link Julie's article there. A big thanks to Amelia Brandemart and Juliana Russ for being my interviewees this episode. Subscribe to the feed and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts if you want to help out the show. To learn more about student voice, check out our website, stewvoice.org. And if you have an idea for the next episode, you can send me a suggestion at simone at As always, special thanks to my mentor, editor, and friend, Yvonne Mahesh, Maya Green for looking the script over, and to the rest of the Student Voice team. Your support is invaluable. The new theme song for the show is titled Slow Fall, and it's by my brother, Henry St. pierre Nelson. I'll let you know if he ever gets a SoundCloud. Thank you for joining me today. It means a lot, and I'll see you next month.